Again, for those of you who might be visiting or not paying attention to anything I say every week, but I, uh, we're going through the book of John uh, slowly but surely. I'm stretching it out, so I'm hoping like when I get to a verse about the rapture, the Lord comes on that weekend or something like that. You know? <laughs> I'm only actually serious. But uh, John chapter 14 is where we are, down by verse 10. All right. John 14. Yeah. Down by verse 10. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and, and this you don't have to answer out loud. You can if you want. But do you ever wonder? Wow, I got really loud. Do you ever wonder why the Lord left you here after you got saved? You ever think about that? I mean, if you're going to heaven through Jesus Christ, and if you are, say amen. amen. Okay, if you don't know for sure if you're going to heaven, we'll speak to you in a little bit. I'll try to plug that in for you. But if you know you're saved, you know Jesus Christ is the payment of your sins, and that's not presumptuous to say that. That's just confidence in what God promised. He said, he that hath the Son hath life. So if you have the Son of God, you have life today. So if you know that today, and if you know you're going to heaven through Jesus Christ, why doesn't the Lord just take you home right away? Why go through the struggles and the strife and the trials and the tribulation and the risings and the fallings and the mountains and the valleys? And the... You ever ask yourself why? Or ask God why? Amen. Well, that's one honest person. <laughs> well, if you're saved and still here, and if you're still here, say Amen. All right, because if you're not here, don't say anything. But if you're still here and you're saved, I'll tell you why you're here. It's because the Lord has a work for you to do. That's why you're here, right? David Livingston, the famous, uh, he didn't call himself famous. I'm, we make him famous. But the faithful missionary to uh, the Congo said, I am immortal till my work is accomplished, right? We think, you know, Death and life are in the power of our pills or our politicians. No, death and life are in God's hands. <laughs> now, that death and life can be rocky and rolling depending on what you do with your life. But you know what? The Bible says there's no discharge from the war that God has. There's no discharge. When God says time's up, time's up. And nobody can fight that. And nobody can get ahead of that. So there is a work. If you're sitting here today and you're saved, there is a work that you have been called to do by Jesus Christ. That is why you are here, because it's a work that only you can do, or else you wouldn't be here. God would have scooped you up and taken you home. But there's something for you to be, and there's something for you to do, and that's why you're still ticking. That's why you're still breathing. That's why you're still going. And in John 14, 10, Jesus starts talking about works. He says, believest thou that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Jesus Christ is saying that my works bear witness to my relationship to the Father. Verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the disciples, right? He that believeth on me, do you? 
The works that I do shall he do also, and watch this, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Jesus Christ points to the greater works, the bigger works, that his disciples would accomplish even after he's gone. That's what he's saying. He's I'm going to leave, but you guys are going to be fruitful and multiply and go on and do more than I did in even my three and a half years. Can you imagine that? He says, that's what the disciples have ahead of them. So let me ask my first question again. You ever wonder why the Lord left you here after you got saved? If you ever wondered that question, it's because you've got work to do. And your works are the only way anyone else will ever see your relationship to the Father. Just like Jesus Christ. And your works as a disciple can multiply and increase. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in heaven. And you're still here. And you've got a work to do. So I want to talk to you about the disciples' work. The disciples' work. And hopefully it will exhort you, encourage you, and maybe provoke you to love and good works. Like the Bible says we should. Lord, we love you today. And Lord, I have no ability to preach this message. We have no ability to minister one to another. We have no strength or goodness in ourselves, Lord, to even take our next step. So, Lord, please, bless our time together, both with the children down the hall and here, Father. May the Spirit of God lead us into all truth. And if someone is lost, may they see the Savior as the only way to be saved and call upon Him today. And if someone is saved, Lord, may they be encouraged to realize that they are right where God wants them, that they are alive because God has something for them to do, And I pray you'd show them who they should be and what they should do, that they may be encouraged to rise up one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. Go to the last verse of the book of John, right, which is John 21, 25. We're going to flip through a lot of verses like we do, but uh, here's the first thing I want to say. The Lord Jesus Christ, and this is going to seem so simple, and you're going to be like, why are you even saying this? But it needs to be repeated. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a life that was full of good works. Everything he did. You know, in the book of Acts, uh, the writer of Acts, Luke, is writing about Jesus Christ, and it says in Acts 10, 38, Jesus Christ went about doing good. That's all he did. Amen? From morning to night, that's all he did. He didn't have any me time. He didn't have any vacation time. Jesus Christ, your Savior, just went about doing good good. What a savior. What an example. What a flag to follow. Amen. Somebody just wanted to do good, do good, do good, do good. And in John 21, 25, the very last verse of this great gospel of John, the writer John puts this keynote, this cherry on top of all that's been said. The Bible says of the book of John that these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. We read the book of John because it tells us who Jesus Christ is. And at the very last verse, John puts this cherry on top. And he says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. The world could not print enough books to document all the good that Jesus Christ did. If we literally filled the earth with books, 
we'd run out of space and have to start throwing them into outer space because Jesus Christ did so much good that they couldn't write enough books. Now, if you chase the rabbits of all the other famous religious leaders that have gone on through history, they don't have such a good testimony. There are some leaders of some big religions that took eight-year-olds for wives. Right? There are some leaders of big religions out there that tried to put their enemies on the rack, that, you know, slept around and did all kinds of devilment. You just look it up, you'll find that. You chase a religious leader long enough, you'll see all the warts and all the spots and all the mistakes. But if you examine Jesus Christ like Pilate, you're going to say, I find in him no fault. (laughs) And John says, hey, this man, this God, this Jesus Christ that I've been writing to you about just went about doing good. You can trust him, you can love him, you can follow him. There are 32 million volumes in the Library of Congress. Not nearly enough for Jesus Christ's good. Not nearly enough for Jesus Christ's good work. Can you take that in? (laughs) How much good did you do yesterday? I bet the good that you've done could fill a thimble in your whole life. Jesus Christ fills the earth with all the good he's done. You need to praise him. You need to boast about him. You need to love him. You need to realize, wow, this is quite a savior I've got. John Wesley, who was a follower of Jesus Christ, said this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That is a provoking saying to inspire our walk down here with Jesus Christ. But that is a perfect summary to describe how Jesus Christ walked down here all the time. Just always doing good without any ulterior motive. Amazing Savior. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Let me show you some things about his works here. We're going to brag on Jesus a little bit in the beginning here. If you have any problems with that, then you could find another church, I guess, because we're going we're to yell about him, shout about him, cry about him, sing about him, clap about him, just tell people about him. We're going to get in your face a little bit about him and put a gospel track in your hand and offer you something to know about him. Because this, listen, if he's as amazing as the Bible says he is, don't you want to know more about him? And don't you want everybody you know to know something a little more about him? I mean, he's that amazing that he warrants being published and proclaimed. And in Matthew 11... John, the Baptist, had a little bit of, you know, he's thrown in jail and he's like, hey, yo, what's going on here, Jesus? I thought the kingdom was coming and I'm in jail now and, hey, are you really the Messiah? Look what Jesus does, Matthew eleven two. 2. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, you realize that there's no Twitter, there's no snaps, you know, how's he getting word in prison that Jesus Christ is doing all this stuff? It was that much, it was resounding that much around Israel and Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ was doing so much good that even this guy that was thrown and left to die in jail is getting word that, wow, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's turning the world upside down. And said unto him, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, go and show John again (laughs) uh, those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is he saying there? He didn't say, John, hey, John, don't you know who I am, cousin? 
You don't know who I am? You're asking me? No, he says, let me just remind you of all the works that I've been doing that testify to I am, to I am. Because the works that Jesus Christ did bore witness that he'd been sent from the Father. And it's not like just helping people across the street here. Jesus Christ did, the Bible calls them, mighty works, monumental works, powerful works, supernatural works. That word mighty is connected to supernatural things. And if you go to Matthew chapter 11, if you just stay there in verse 20, look how many times he starts talking about mighty works. See it? Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 23. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I mean, my goodness, if somebody came in healing the sick and raising the dead and opening the eyes of the blind, you'd think that somebody might repent. <laughs> You'd think that somebody might pay attention. But they didn't like his righteousness. They didn't like his holiness. They didn't like that other part of the message. They liked the kingdom come, but they didn't like thy will be done. They liked, you know, the, they wanted the toppings without, you know, the main course. And Jesus Christ said, you got to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And they didn't like the righteousness. They liked what he was doing for them, but they wanted, they didn't want the righteousness. You see that? If you want Jesus Christ in his fullest and his truest, you've got to accept his righteousness. That he's a righteous God and a holy God. Not just a God that helps you when you're down and heals you when you're sick and makes you have a smile when you have a frown. No, he's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a true God. You accept that part of him, guess what? Then you start to see him really work and move. Now go over to chapter 13. Verse number 54. Again, mighty works, mighty works, mighty works. 1354. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? They all saw it, they all knew it. Everybody knew Jesus Christ was bringing forth mighty works, monumental works, powerful works, supernatural works. These are not the works like that scam psychic that's around the corner from your house. And you go see that scam psychic who may have a legitimate devil. I would say as far. No Christian should ever step foot in a place like that. If you're going to some medium or some Ouija board or some tarot card flipping devil to get insight that the Holy Spirit can give you, you are letting some people, creatures, know that you're interested in things that no child of God should be interested in. You should back away and burn it and not twinkle with those things at all. Can I be any more emphatic? But you know what? You get this Madame Blavatsky or this, this schmo on the corner that gives you five bucks to read the lines on your palm. You know what? They're going to tell you some general schlop, you know, about someone somewhere is going to do something to you somehow, Right? Somebody with a shirt on named Bill or John or Steve is going to cross your path and then 
change your life forever. How? I don't know, but it's going to be so special. That, that's how they get you, right? They give you these. Now, some of them are legit. They're communicating with familiar spirits and they're demons and you need to really stay away from them. But most of them are charlatans. Jesus Christ raised a man from the dead in front of a crowd of witnesses. It wasn't like, you know, some fuzzy, you know, weird, you know, vague thing. Right there in front of everybody, he says, Lazarus, come forth, and his enemies beheld it. And his enemies wanted to kill him because of it. It wasn't like it was done in a corner. Even Paul told Agrippa, hey, Agrippa, this stuff wasn't done in a corner. It was done out in the open in front of people. Guy on the side of the road with a press of people all around, he heals them. A guy born blind from from birth, John chapter 9, he heals him in the whole temple and everybody knows about it. Jesus Christ did things right out in front of the open, not vague, not unclear, not like the the healers today. Well, if you have enough faith to be healed, then God will really do it for you. But no, no, no. When Jesus Christ healed somebody, he healed somebody irrespective of who you were. That's how Jesus Christ worked. Go to John chapter 15. I want to see that Jesus Christ did some mighty works. John 15, 24. You with me so far? Say amen. amen. All right. Aren't you glad you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. John 15, 24. He's the one that's holding you fast. The one that could raise the dead and still the, still the sea. He's the one that's got you in the palm of his hand. Right? John 15, 24 says, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did. See that? He was special. He was not like anybody else. Jesus Christ did mighty works to testify that he was the mighty God in the flesh. He came to do things that defied nature and defied explanation to testify that I am God manifest in the flesh. Look at John chapter 10. Look at verse 24. Keep flipping with me. John 10, 24. John 10, 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Can't you see the frustration? Can't you see the agita that these religious stuff shirts must have had? You know, these religious charlatans, these religious jerks must have had. And um, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you. Isn't that great? <laughs> I told you. All right? Very simple. You see how Jesus Christ speaks plain? I told you. And you believe me not. And you believe not. The works that I do, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Listen, Jesus Christ did not go around announcing who he was like the pride of man does. He didn't go sound the trumpet after himself and say, God's here. That's how men are. I've arrived, I'm here. We walk into that party and we hear for everybody to turn around and look at us. You know, if somebody's coming to town, the billboard goes up. You know, this guy's coming to town. This one's playing at the art center. This one's showing up. And we make these big announcements that everybody's showing up. Jesus Christ was meek and lowly and humble. He was the meekest man that walked the face of the earth. A bruised reed would he not break? Smoking flax would he not quench? So he didn't sound the pipe or an organ after himself. But you know what he did? He led his actions. Speak louder than his words. Do you? You know, you don't walk into a family event and say, I am a child of God. You know what that's going to get you? A target painted on your back. And they're going to look at you like the hypocrite that you are. You know what's a good thing to do? Maybe shut your mouth 
and let your actions speak louder than your words. There's a time to open your mouth. I'm not saying you don't witness with your lips, but you know what? If your lips and your life are not congruent, you better just shut your lips up and get your life right. And Jesus Christ, he let his actions speak louder than his words. Look at John chapter 5, verse 36. See it? They don't want to know your doctrinal statement. They want to see your deeds. Because talk is cheap. John 5, 36. Jesus says again, but I have greater witness than that of John. I mean, John the Baptist did some great things, but he said, I'm way above John. For the works which the Father had given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. There was nothing outward that let anybody know Jesus was the Son of God. You understand that? The Bible says in Isaiah 53, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was no halo. There were no sparrows. There was no aura that he walked into a room and it was like, oh, no, nothing like that. You would have passed him on the street and not known you just bumped into the son of God. You understand that? They were crowding around him. They didn't know who he was until he opened his mouth and saw what he did. And if you go back to John chapter 10, let me just show you one more thought here. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The same is true of you. What are you going to sit next to that person at work and just hope your glow sometimes lets them know that you know Jesus Christ? No, you know, you're going to go walk through the supermarket and just, you know, think that you're going to emit some kind of aura? You know, what's going to happen? It's going to be by what you do. Holding that door open, picking up that thing that fell for that person, having that kind word for somebody, giving that person a gospel track, right? The things that you do, that's what we're going to see. Because I can't see anything outwardly beautiful about you except my wife. Right? There's something outwardly beautiful about her. But you know what? There's nothing outwardly beautiful about you that says, like, you know, I am a son of God, 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 God. No, you got to do something to show the world who you are. In John 10, 37, Jesus says, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. The works that Jesus Christ did as a servant revealed his sonship. Do yours? Do your deeds reveal that you're a son of God? Because point number two is this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. The disciples of Jesus Christ, listen, let's follow the logic here, very simple. Jesus Christ lived a life full of good works. Amen? Do we agree on that? All right, that was a little weak. Jesus Christ lived a life full of good works. Do we agree? Okay. Well, if that's true, then a disciple is someone who follows Jesus Christ, right? So if Jesus Christ lived a life full of good works, then the disciples of Jesus Christ should live a life that is full of good works. Very good, class. You follow that logic. I, I don't know what that is. PQ, therefore QP. I don't know what that is, but it's something. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are you saved? Say amen one more time. You are saved by grace. That is the vehicle of salvation. Right? That is the agent of salvation. That's what got you saved. Not the works that you did, but the work that Jesus Christ did. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Unmerited favor. That's grace. You don't deserve it. You could never earn it. The Bible says by grace, by God's unmerited favor, goodness, kindness, and love towards us, we are able to be saved. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. By grace. That is the agent of salvation, the vehicle of your salvation. But read the next verse. For we, the saved, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now watch the prepositions, folks. You got an English teacher up here. I'm going to go preposition crazy on you now. The first preposition in verse 8 is by. That means that's the agent or the vehicle of salvation. But verse 10 uses a different preposition, unto. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk, see, not be saved, but walk in them. Verse 8 and 9 says you were saved by grace. Verse 10 says you were saved unto good works. That's not the agent of your salvation. That's the aim of your salvation. That's not the vehicle of your salvation. That's the vocation of your salvation. That's where God was trying to get you when he saved you. He was trying to get you to be somebody that could bring forth some good works for God. You couldn't do that when you were lost. Go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Does that make sense? You see that difference? If you don't see that difference, ask me at the end. I'll try to clarify it or I'll point you to somebody that can because I'm going like a rocket ship right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 16. See this? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine. That's the first reason we have the Bible is so we can learn things about God. For a proof so God can tell you when you're uh, thinking or doing something wrong. That's part of the Bible. That's why people don't like it, right? It tells you you're doing something wrong. For correction, that's when you're thinking something wrong. For instruction of righteous, in righteousness, why? That the man of God may be perfect, mature, complete, whole, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see that? God purchased your house. You see your body? That's your house. God bought it. He said, you're in foreclosure. They're going to demo this thing. I'm going to buy this. God says, I bought your house. I bought your body. He says, you know what I want to do with your body? You know, I bought your house with my blood. I want to furnish it with good works. I want to put some, good, I want to put some kindness over here, some charity over here, some love over here, some mercy over here, some sacrifice over here. I think this wall will look great with some, with some meekness. I think this living room over here needs to be cleared out. we got to put some holiness in here. God says, I'm trying to furnish your house with good works. Unto all. He bought the house with his blood when he saved you. And now he says, I want to furnish this puppy. Oh, that's what you do, don't you? You buy a house and it's empty. Or it's got stuff left behind that nobody wants. You get that stuff out. You put a fresh coat of paint. Or you call Eli to put a fresh coat of paint. And you know what? You start, you start cleaning that stuff up. And you buy that little thing you want over here. And that thing over here. And you make it look like it's yours. 
God purchased your vessel. God bought your body. You know what he says? I got to get this stuff out of here. I'm going to just slap the blood of Christ everywhere and just cover all that sin and get rid of all that stuff. And now I want to put some holiness here, some righteousness here, some kindness here. Why? So when I look at this house, it looks like it's mine. You didn't do good to be saved. You got saved so you could do good. God never accepted it before you were saved because you were dirty. Think about it. Would you want someone with filthy hands to clean your house? They come in covered in muck and mire, like, I'm just going to vacuum. I'm going to clean the grout. No, please don't. You're going to get everything dirty because you got dirty hands trying to clean. It defeats the point. And does God want someone with a filthy soul to offer him good works? No, your pride's all up in that. Your lust is all up in that. Your self is all up in that. I don't want any of that, God says. It's all polluted by your filthy soul. You got the wrong motivation. You got the wrong intention. You're all wrong. I don't want that. You got to get saved to do good first. See Titus chapter 2? Look across the page. Look a couple of pages over. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. That's why God saved you, folks. So you could bring forth good works. So you could do something that would count for eternity. That's why you're still here. That's why you're alive. That's why he left you behind. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, our, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for him. I hope you're looking for him. I'm looking for him. Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, salvation, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, amen, zealous of good works. The Savior gave his life that we might live a life that's full of good works. So we could defeat the habits that we couldn't defeat before. So we could put the sin down that we couldn't put down before. That we have a power now to approach God and please God and enter into his presence and offer him something that brings him some glory. That's what he saved you for. So you'd be zealous of that. Christians are zealous of all kinds of stuff. I won't list them. Because if I list them, I'll offend you. But we're zealous about but we're zealous about everything under the sun. Just We're so into it. We get so excited about it. God says, hey, how about helping me out with something? Oh, my goodness. Pat's texting me again about this thing. I can't do it. I'm so busy. I got to do so much stuff. Don't you know? That's not zeal. Zeal is like, yeah! Zeal's like how you are at the football game, right? Yeah, 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 touchdown, all right. I mean, whatever, the basketball game. I look forward to watching my kids play basketball. I don't lie about it. And I got some zeal for that. But I have some zeal like, oh, there's a fair in two weeks. Maybe I could steal a little bit of time away and go hand out some tracks or help somebody set up. Oh, there's a prayer meeting this time. Oh, maybe I could go labor for somebody and pray for somebody, right? Zeal is passion and excitement. Where is it, folks? Jesus Christ died so you'd have a life that was zealous of good works. Verse 15. You say, why are you preaching this, Pat? You're upsetting me. These things, and he was telling a pastor, right? These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. In other words, this admonition that I'm giving you, 
is part of what a pastor is commanded by the Apostle Paul to preach. I'm supposed to say it. I'm supposed to provoke you, exhort you. And when I see you going sideways and not doing what you should be doing, I have the authority, and I don't like to say that because it sounds weird, but the Bible gives some people the authority to rebuke you if necessary in love, but to say, hey, hey, let's get back on course. Hey, let's get priorities reestablished. Look at chapter three of verse eight, or chapter three in verse eight. This is a faithful saying. And now he's talking to a pastor. Titus was an elder. And he says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God. Is that you? Just one more amen. amen. Okay, okay. I got the right auditorium. They which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. The Lord tells the pastor, you got to keep reminding my people you got to keep reminding my people to maintain good works because it's easy to quit, to drop off, to cool your jets, to step away, to backslide. It's real easy to do that, to kind of lose your zeal. It's simple, isn't it? Just kind of just stop the maintenance and guess how cold you get. Now, we like God's faithful sayings, don't we? We like the faithful sayings of 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And we'll preach that, the mission are on the street to each other, and we'll cheer and we'll say, yes, Jesus Christ came to save us. Amen. We like that faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Do you like that faithful saying? Amen. Come on. Do you like that faithful saying? That means it's a trustable saying. I don't think trustable is a word, right? It's a trustworthy saying. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, some word that means trust, right? A word, right? All my vocabulary escapes me, and I'm an English teacher. But it's a, it's a faithful saying. You can put your trust in it. But this is another faithful saying. He said, this is a faithful saying, too. Do we live the faithful saying that follows salvation, that Christians are in the world to serve? We like the faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. But do we hold to the same faithful saying that Christians are in the world to serve? He says, that's faithful too. That's reliable too. You can bank on that one too. Titus 3.14, stay with me now. Now, Paul puts himself in the mix, right? Paul is not above anybody else. Even though he had authority, he was right down there with them. And he says, and let ours also, meaning I'm with you, Titus, and you've got to be with your people, Titus. You're not above anybody. You're right there on the ground in this level playing field. He says, and let ours also, meaning the saved, the brethren, learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Now, you see the end of verse 8? I skipped this. He says, these things are good and profitable unto men. You know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Do your good works make God any more God? Do your bad works make God any less God? He's not the tooth fairy, people. If you stop coming to church and reading your Bible, it's not like he's Marty and back to the future. He starts evaporating like, oh, no, I'm not going to exist anymore. Reference for you. If you don't know what that is, just keep that to yourself. But anyway, right, God doesn't need you to make him exist like the tooth fairy, the Easter bunny. But your good works help the people around you see God. So he says that's what it's for. And then he says let's maintain those things because if you don't keep up your good works, you won't bear any fruit for God. 
Listen, I do a little bit of guard, yard work, a little bit, right? If you, I heard that, amen. I see that hand. If you don't maintain your garden, you won't see any fruit, right? The weeds get in there, the bugs get in there, the, the spotted lantern flies get in there, <coughs> right? And they just spoil the whole thing. I got these skip laurels that we planted a couple of years ago, and I kind of just thought they just go on automatic pilot, and now they, they grew like a nothing, you know, and I finally kind of spoke to some people, and I've been spraying them, I've been feeding them, and they're starting to show a little bit of life. Oh, I've seen a little bit of fruit. All right, that's a blessing, but if you just leave it to itself, if you don't maintain, it just goes to pot. And if you don't maintain good works in your life, you're not going to see any fruit in your walk with God. It's not going to happen automatically. It requires work, effort, cultivation to bring forth some fruit out of this ground. And just like Jesus Christ, the disciples' work shows the world your relationship to the Father. What did Jesus Christ very famously say in Matthew chapter 5? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your halo. They may see your divine spark. They might see, you know, that smile when you get in the car in the morning. No, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The world can't see your faith, but they can see your works. James 2.18, James writes, I will show thee my faith by my works. Because only God can see your heart. Right Now, God can see your heart. God knows who's saved and lost. The Bible says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Somebody might not be living right. I'm not going to be a fruit inspector and say that person's lost. They could be saved and just living wrong. I, that's very, very true. God sees the heart. But you know what I see? I see the works. And the works bring forth testimony. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, said, faith and works should travel side by side. Step answering to step, like the legs of men walking. First faith, and then works, and then faith again, and then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. That's your walk with God. Faith and works, faith and works, faith and works. And those two things go hand in hand. Cricket. Those things go hand in hand that you might bring a testimony to somebody else. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, to the right a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, For so is the will of God. That means it's a pretty big deal, right? It's the will of God. For so is the will of God that with well-doing... He may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God wants you to shut the skeptic's mouth with good works, with well-doing. Listen, the world may deny your Christ, but they can't deny your kindness. The atheist may mock your God, but they can never malign you for doing good. And when your enemy's hungry... And you feed him, the Bible says you heap coals of fire on his head. Because he can't get away from it. And if you were accused of being a Christian, and they traced your last 48 hours of what you did, 
If somebody was tailing you and writing down everything you did, would they find enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? John 14, 11, Jesus said, believe me for the very work's sake. Would anyone believe you were a follower of Christ because of your works? And finally, 1 Corinthians 3. See, why are you making such a big deal out of this, Pat? Well, not just because I was told to by the Word of God, but the disciples' work will be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. When the Lord returns, He's going to review what we did or didn't do for Him since we've been saved. 1 Corinthians 3.11. You see it with me? Say amen. amen. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. When you got saved, God laid a foundation and gave you some blueprints for building, right? You couldn't build anything for him. You got saved. God laid the foundation. That's the rock, Jesus Christ. He said, here's the code now. Here's the blueprints. Build something for me. That's what he said to do. And in verse 12, he says, Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He's saying there's six things there. Six is the number of man. He's saying you could build good, gold, silver, precious stones. You could build bad, wood, hay, stubble. That stuff all burns up. He says, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? Right? God left you here to work. God left you here to build. He said, I poured the foundation. Jesus Christ poured out his life. Now it's your turn to work. Here's the blueprint. Here's the materials. You got everything you need. I've given to you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You got everything you need. What are you building for me? What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? You know, when I grew up over there in Staten Island, Eltingville, Great Kills area, when I grew up right on a, Hillcrest. When I grew up, there was a house that was left unfinished for years. For years. Big. Yeah, see, I'm not lying. Now they know I'm not lying to you. It was a real Gavone house. It was like all these little houses, and they had this big Gavone house. I don't know. The mafia must have been there. And I would ride my bike, and they, they put all the brick and everything up there. And it was like just left unfinished literally for years. It was an eyesore. It was a reproach. You know what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke? He said, if you lay a foundation and don't finish building, people begin to mock you. And if your life claims to know Jesus Christ and nothing's being built and you're not finishing what God told you to do, you're going to be a reproach when you should have been a blessing. And in verse 13, he says, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire, those are the eyes of Jesus Christ, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. See, when Jesus Christ blows the whistle, the workday ends, and your building gets reviewed. Isn't that what happens now? I mean, where I live, the township I live, as soon as you build anything in my town... The inspectors come to check out the job. That is 
if you applied for a permit, you know, but I'm not going to talk about that other stuff. But, you know, I did a thing where I had, a, I had to take out a wall a few years ago when it was a 17-foot span, and we did it by the book, and we had an architect do it, and we did the work, but we had an architect draw up the plans. But they come in, man, as soon as you're done, when you want them to sign off on that, they, they pull that permit. They want to see, did you use the right screws? On one spot, I used the wrong screws. I had to change the screws. Or, you know, you got to get the, you know, you got to take care of the drywall, right? You got to dust this or sand this the right way, do this the right way. I want to see it this way. They're inspecting what you built. They're checking out the job. Is God any different? Verse 14. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Hey, he says, if you're doing it according to code, you're going to get a reward. You'll get to enjoy what you built forever. Right? If you did it according to code, you'll get to enjoy what you built and enjoy it forever and let it bring glory to God into eternity. But he says, if any man's work shall be burned, the work shall be burned. Not the person, not the soul. If any man's work uh, shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He's saying, if you built it wrong, you suffer loss, you lose what you built. Some places you don't do it according to code, they're saying you've got to pull that thing down and do it all over again. But at the judgment seat of Christ, you don't get a do-over. That's it. Right? That's the end of the game right there. So if you built it wrong, then you're going to lose what you built. You're not going to enjoy it. You're going to lose it. You're going to suffer loss. But just to reassure you, he says, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is by fire. He says, you're still saved. You're still going to heaven. The judgment seat of Christ is a review of your service, not your sonship. It's for rewards, not eternal life. Listen, if I give my children a job to do while I'm away and they refuse to do it, they're still my children. I still love them and care about them. They just miss out on the special reward and privilege I wanted to give them when I return. And brethren, if you think this all ends when the trumpet sounds, if you think it ends when the trumpet sounds and we just sit by the celestial river catching fish, you, got the, you haven't read your Bible very carefully. Because God talks about a kingdom that's going on forever and ever and ever, and he's looking for faithful servants down here that can rule and reign in that kingdom out there, and what you do down here is a proving ground for whether you're fit to reign out there. And God says, hey, if you show yourself, if you could build according to code now, you can help build my kingdom later. You say, where's that coming from? Just read your Bible. It's Isaiah chapter 9. Just find it for yourself. It's in there. But listen, folks. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I got just two, two or three more verses left. Stay with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I know it's not a shout, shout message, but it's a sobering message. Because when Jesus Christ returns, he wants to share in that reward. He wants to share in that reigning. He wants you to reign with him. But if you don't do what you got to do down here, you might still go to heaven, but you might not have that special privilege that he wanted to have when he returned. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to Christians. This is not the judgment seat of God. This is not the white throne. This is the judgment seat of Christ for believers, for your service. He says, we, Christians, must all appear. 
Now, sometimes you get a traffic ticket and you got all ways of kind of getting around it. You know, I'll postpone it a bunch of times. You know, there's all these tricks of the trade that people try to, you know somebody, right? There used to be all these ways to get around it. When you're called to appear before this bar, you're going to appear. There's no way around it. And he says that every, every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. See, when the Father calls you home, he wants to see what you've done with the body he bought. What have you done in your body? Listen, if I gave my son a car, my car, I bought it, I said, you could use it. If I bought my son a car and asked him to take care of it, when I got back, I'd review his work. Did you wash it? Did you change the oil? Did you check the tires? You know, did you keep up on it? Did you take good care of it? And if Jesus Christ bought your body with his blood, he's going to review what you did in his body when he gets back. I bought those hands. What would you do with those hands? I bought that tongue. What would you do with that mouth? I bought those feet. Where'd you go with those legs? He's going to see what you did in your body, whether it be good or whether it be bad, to see what kind of rewards you get or don't get. Verse 11, by the looks of your faces, you could say amen to this verse. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm not going to lie. That is a terrifying prospect. That's why Paul preached about it. He didn't want any Christian to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, so he preached about it. And I said this on Thursday night. That's what Pastor Mel used to preach about all the time near the end of his ministry. He said one of the reasons why we have tragedies in churches today is because there is not enough preaching on the judgment seat of Christ. That's examination day, man. That's that's the bar. That's everything. That's the day where everything gets reviewed. That's what we're building towards. Yes, he's going to come back, but as soon as John gets called up in Revelation 4, you know where he is? He's in a throne room. And somebody's sitting on a throne with eyes of fire looking at his life. And as soon as we get called up, it's not hunky-dory right away. It's the judgment seat of Christ first. And then the party's later. We've got to soberly consider that. If you knew you had a test for the job, a test for the, for the license, a test for the class, you'd bone up on some stuff and you'd shore some things up and say, let me make sure I didn't miss anything. The judgment seat of Christ is coming faster than you could think. Let's make sure we didn't miss anything as a church, as a family. Romans 14. I'm almost there. Romans 14. Endure unto the end and you shall be saved. Romans 14. Look, I don't like preaching this any more than you like hearing it. But it's the sobering truth. Romans 14. I don't mean it with any mean spirit either. God is loving and God is gracious. And God wants to reward you. And God's looking for ways to reward you. It's just you got to have a heart that wants to do something for him. Romans 14.10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, because Jesus Christ is God right there. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. In other words, if the Lord left you here to do something, shouldn't you do it? Shouldn't you maybe find out what it is? Don't look at your brother. Because what your brother's doing is not what you have to do. 
What your sister's doing is not what you have to do. You don't have to do what I do, and you don't, I don't have to do what you do. We've all been left here to do something only we can do for God. Amen. And we're trying to find out what that is and fulfill it. You know, every April, every American has to give an account of their income to the IRS. It's a big deal. And there's all kinds of ways around it. People lie on their returns. Companies find loopholes. Folks exploit the tax code. Some simply don't even do it. They just don't turn it in. They just push it off. But most people are scared enough of the IRS or getting audited that they do it, right? They go see their accountant and they do it and they take care of it. They try to do it as, as best they can. But folks, if the IRS seems scary, shouldn't the judgment seat of Christ put the fear of God in you? There's no loophole. There's no deferment. There's no like, oh no, can you just take the other person first? I got to get my receipts. No, it's you looking at the eyes of Jesus Christ that are burning with fire and he's just reviewing the motivation and the sort of work you did since you got saved till he called you home. And that, my friend, is called the terror of the Lord. It's terrifying. It's sobering. It's, I mean... If the boss goes away, I'm going to go on for two weeks. You're like, yeah. You know. If the boss goes away and gives you a job to do, you may put it off for a time, right? But when you see his return approaching, you kind of get into gear and you get to work, right? It's like April 15th. You know, maybe you put off doing that stuff for a while, but when you start to see April 15th roll up on your calendar, you start to like, oh, I got to get my receipts together. I got to get my stuff together because I got to go, you know, I got to go take care of this because the day is approaching. Brethren, do you see the day approaching? It's, it's approaching. You have to be blind, deaf, or dumb to not see it approaching. The world is in chaos. The church is in apostasy, and all the Bible is being fulfilled like dominoes just falling over one after another. Pretty soon, the stack is going to be completely fallen, and you're going to hear the trumpet sound. The day is approaching. The day is approaching. Hey, what are you waiting for to get to work? Rapture number two. There is no rapture number two. What are you waiting for to commit to your Bible, to commit to church, to commit to your family, to commit to maybe some service the Lord has laid on your heart. What are you waiting for? Once that trumpet blows, that's it. Work day's done. Rewards are given out. We go home. And the Lord left you here for a reason. He left you here to do a work that only you can do. And in John 14, verse 10, let's go there. Go to John 14 and Philippians 2. That's where we're going to end and pray. I just want to leave you with this. John 14, verse 10. This is not an appeal to go to every fair we've got left. This is not a plea to kind of like help pick up all the hymnals. I don't know what it is that God wants you to do. But he's got something for you to do. And here's the key, verse 10, 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. You see? If Jesus Christ said the Father worked in him, rest assured, the Father works in you too. You don't have to wonder about what God wants from you. You don't have to conjure something up. You have to commune with him and then get out of God's way. Lord, What wilt thou have me to do? 
Would you pray that prayer today like the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I want you to be a little more faithful. I want you to be a little more patient. I want you to be a little bit more committed. I want you to give that guy at work a track. I want you to pray with your family more. I want you to be kinder to your neighbor. I don't know what it is. I'm not God, but he is, and he lives inside of you. And Jesus said, the Father's in me doing the works. Guess what? He lives inside of you. He wants to do the works through you. What you got to do? Check in with headquarters. Commune with him. You might be afraid of what he says, though. I get it. I get it. But if you really mean business, all you got to do is yield Submit to what God wants to do through you. All right? Philippians chapter 2, and then we'll pray. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, work out what God has worked in. See that? Illustration. You've all got an anatomy, right? You've all got this body. God's given all of your anatomy muscle. You've all got muscle. There should be a pile of bones sitting on the floor. You've all got muscle, but only a few people work those muscles out. And if you consistently work out, you know what? It shows. Other people can see your good works. God's given you muscle. If you work it out, you know what? People see how you've worked it. But a lot of Christians, they've been given something, and they never work it out, and nobody sees anything. Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will, he's going to give you the idea, and to do, he's going to help you do it, of his good pleasure. Listen, if you consistently do good works, it's going to show. People will see it. And if the Lord has left you here for good works, are you doing anything that pleases him today? He says, I want you to do something that says that of his good pleasure. So if you claim to be a disciple, are you ready to do the disciples' work? Are you willing to do the disciples' work? Are you doing the disciples' work? Because that's why you're here. That's why you're breathing. That's why you woke up today. Not to stuff your face and feed your life, but that you might be something for God and do something for God that only you on all of planet Earth could ever do for him. That's your high calling. Let's not forsake it. Let's bow our heads.